Luke chapter 16. He said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and he said to him, what is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do? My master is taking the management away from me. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I'm removed from management, people will receive me into their houses. So he summoned the master's debtors one by one. He said to them, how much do you owe my master? And they said, a hundred measures of oil. He replied, take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill, write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of the world are uh, much more, uh, more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of the light. I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. One who is faithful with little is also faithful with much. And one who is dishonest with little is also dishonest with much. If you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you with true riches? And if you have not been faithful with another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is God's word. Today, we have the privilege of uh, hearing our minister, Jeff, uh, give the message today. Uh, and the title will be on uh, the parable of the shrewd steward. Jeff, over to you. Morning, Crossbridge. Coming to you live from the uh, church office. Uh, you're going to have to excuse the little Bluetooth in my ear. In view of the headset that we usually have on, on Sunday mornings, we're using this as kind of a makeshift microphone. So hopefully, hopefully the, the audio is, is coming through a little bit more clearly without all the echoing of the sound bouncing off of the, the walls of my office. Now, though I'm not able to see you face to face, and I know many of us are, are yearning for the day when we can gather together again in person. We yearn because we know that this is not a, a substitute or a replacement for the physical gathering of God's people, the church. At the same time, given the situation we find ourselves in, we're, we're grateful to live in an age where technology can allow us to, to meet together virtually, continue to worship and hear from God's word corporately. Now, we're nearing the end of our sermon series, How to Get Unstuck Spiritually. All of us are, are physically stuck at home now. Some of us might be spiritually stuck as well. 
Now, throughout the series, as Bonet had uh, read for us as we recited together, hopefully we've been reciting this liturgy. We've preached on a number of topics that reiterate this point that God in his divine power has given us all things necessary for life and godliness. And so we've covered topics like like prayer, uh, reading his word, worship, confession, spiritual friendship, Sabbath trials and service and these are all things that help us in our walk with god that that challenge us spiritually that that cause us to to look to god rather than to ourselves and so we continue the, the sermon series this morning with another topic giving giving as a way for us to to grow to mature in christ to get unstuck spiritually now, but before we go into our passage this morning, let me actually say a few words uh, on, on giving. When it comes to the pulpit, our church doesn't uh, step back from preaching difficult passages or themes because we believe that God has spoken to us clearly in his word. And so we desire to hear what he has to say to us. Now, with that same reasoning, we approach something like preaching on giving. Even if it, what makes it challenging might be for a different reason than, 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 let's say, preaching on the wrath of God or, or our sin. It doesn't make it any easier. Uh, and I might add that it's uh, somewhat unfortunate and probably even more strange for me to preach on giving while facing a camera that's being streamed live to your screens at home. Nevertheless, we, we seek to hear from all of God's word. And so I want to be clear from the start as we approach his word this morning that you know, there's no secret or hidden or double meaning to uh, behind my words this morning. I might give some examples. Examples I share might seem real and convicting to you, but there's no hidden agenda. That, and, and mostly that they seem might seem real convicting because they were real or convicting to me at one point or another. I don't aim to exposit anything but God's word revealed to us in his holy scriptures. So with that said, there's a twist uh, on a common saying that goes something like this. What's yours is mine, and what's mine is mine. What's yours is mine, and what's mine is mine. Now, I think most of us, when we hear that, we instinctively think, you know, something's wrong with that statement. It's not going to go too well if you tell your spouse, you know, what's yours is mine, and what's mine is mine. Especially now that we're stuck at home, uh, tell your spouse, your, your family, you know, this is my workspace and, and your workspace is my workspace now too. We don't teach this to our, our children either, you know, because we, we want them to learn about sharing. We want them to learn about ownership. But I'm going to posit this morning that there's at least one situation I can think of where this twist is true. It's true when it refers to God. I'm going to see that in our passage this morning. What's mine is God's, and what's God's is God's. This is the idea, or part of the idea, of stewardship. So if you have your Bibles, uh, maybe some of you are, are watching on your phones at home, so you might have to, to pick up that print Bible or open it up on your computer. Turn with me to, to Luke chapter 16. As Bonin read for us earlier, in the first eight verses, we see Jesus telling this parable of the shrewd steward. Parables remain part of Jesus' teaching. Now, what 
might be somewhat troubling about this parable is that it sure looks like Jesus is pointing to a criminal and saying, go and do likewise. But that can't be what Jesus is saying, right? Except it, when we approach the text, it seems like it's exactly what he's saying. And so I think we, we need to be really careful to figure out what he's actually saying. Now, our passage, uh, our, uh, our passage begins like many other parables uh, with the introduction of an unnamed character. So there was a rich man who had a manager. Very quickly, we find that this manager is, is failing at his job to manage. He's wasting his boss's possessions. So word gets to the boss, the boss calls him to the office. And there's no dispute here on the part of the manager. Doesn't fight the accusations. He, he knows he's been caught. The future isn't looking too bright for him. Now, he knows himself well enough to think, well, this job was really good for me. Perfect desk job, good hours, good pay, good reputation. And, and now what are my options? I can't do manual labor. I'm not strong enough to dig. I've been sitting at this desk this in this chair for the past several years. And so physical labor is out of the question. And, and there's no way, I'm definitely not going, going to beg either. I don't have the audacity to do something like that. Now, at this point in the parable, in the story, the dishonest manager comes, comes up with a plan. He's going to call on all the people who owe his boss money. He thinks, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write off some of their debts. And so once I am officially fired, they're going to owe me some favors. They'll take care of me. Maybe they'll even offer me a job. They'll welcome me in. And, and so he calls the first guy in. How much do you owe my master? 100 measures of oil? Here, yeah, write down 50. And, and put it in your handwriting too. And, and, and he does this. Person after person after person. And here's the striking point about how this parable ends. The master, he, he re-enters the scene. And, and where we would expect the master to reprimand this manager, he instead commends him for his shrewdness. This parable is a parable on stewardship. What's mine is God's and what's God's is God's. Now, what we find in our passage today as Jesus exposits and explains this parable for us is Jesus calls us not just to be stewards, but to be shrewd stewards. Verses 8 to 9, we read, The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Now, having ended the parable, Jesus is beginning with this explanation, the latter half of verse 8. What he's saying is this, that the sons of this world are exceptionally shrewd in investing for their earthly future. Let me say that again. The sons of this world are exceptionally shrewd in investing for their earthly future. So Jesus is explaining what's going on. He, he begins a sentence with a conjunction for. He's explaining why the master is commending this dishonest manager. The reason he gives is this comparison between the sons of this world, uh, those who don't belong to God, and the sons of light, God's children. So Jesus says this manager is shrewd because the sons of this world are exceptionally shrewd 
in dealing with their own generation. They're, they're shrewd, they're more adept, more audacious, more bold when it comes to dealing with worldly affairs. And it's this specific shrewdness that the manager in Jesus is commending. Not all the specific details about how the manager went about it, but simply just the idea of shrewdness. Neither one is commending the dishonest part of this whole ordeal. In fact, what was dishonest in this passage was the manager being a, a horrible steward and wasting his manager's possessions. The only redemption here is the shrewdness after the fact. And so what we find here is this manager being shrewd by, by having enough foresight into his future and then taking action upon it. We saw that in verses three to four. And now Jesus points to this shrewdness as an example for his disciples, as an example for us today. Jesus goes on to say, the sons of light are to be as shrewd in investing for their eternal future. Jesus says, look, look at this manager, look at the steps he took to secure his future. You know, he understood what his strengths were, what he was willing and not willing to do. He understood what his options were, saw the opportunity to leverage those in debt to his master for his own benefit and the security of his future. Now you then, my disciples, you need to be as shrewd as he is, but for a completely different purpose. Now, this manager, he, he made sure that when the dust settled, he would be welcomed into the homes of these people. Compare that with what Jesus calls his disciples to do. Make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth. So that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. And so note the comparison there. When the dust settles, where do you want to end up? In the eternal dwelling place, the, the kingdom of God. Because the truth is that this wealth will fail. This is what the text says. It doesn't say if it fails. It says when it fails. And it will fail. Now, Jesus is not calling us uh, to this salvation by works. But he is challenging us in terms of where our heart is. What are we worshiping? So the implied question here, too, is will we use what God has given us to steward, to manage, to invest in earthly treasures where moth and rust destroy, or will we use it to invest in eternity? And how are we going to do that? Make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth. That's a, that's a really bizarre statement. For one, what, what is unrighteous wealth? Look at verse 11. The unrighteous wealth here, he, he's contrasting it with true riches. So the contrast here is, is not between wealth that is inherently immoral and, and wealth that is not. The contrast here is between wealth that is, is temporary, fleeting, of insignificant worth, and true wealth, true riches that is good. What is actually permanent, enduring, worth pursuing. Now, the fact of the matter is that as of now, all we got are dollar bills. We have not yet received the crown of glory that awaits those who follow Christ. And so with what we have now, with what God has given us, 
whether it's money, whether it's other resources, we use it for the kingdom of God. Now, that doesn't mean that we have to use everything. We still need basic necessities. We need, still need food and shelter and, and clothing and, and many other things. But again, the idea behind this whole parable is stewardship. We are stewards. We are managers. What we have belongs not to us, but to God. What's mine is God's. And what's God's is God's. God is calling us in this passage to be generous with what he's given us to manage and to use what he's given us to further his kingdom and his plan of redemption. And in being generous, we ought to be shrewd. Now, shrewd stewardship is neither spending wastefully nor saving stingily. You see, it's not going to benefit anyone if we spend irresponsibly on anything and everything that has to do with church or God. So if we end up building a multi-purpose center, multi-function center, we don't need to buy 10 basketball hoops when we maybe only need two. Now, on the flip side, neither is it going to benefit anyone if we Save money simply for the sake of saving. I know there's a tendency for us to to want to do that because it gives security. But Jesus is calling us to to be shrewd, to be intentional, to be purposeful. And I, I think there's many ways for us to be shrewd stewards. And I think one example might be where we give, when we give. Our church actually has a number of funds set up for a lot of different purposes. Some of you who've been at our our church for for quite a while now, maybe you're aware of these different funds. Uh, Now, on Sundays, back when we were still meeting together physically, we did only pass one bag around, but it was still possible to give to these different funds. And now that we have online giving, uh, some of you might have noticed the different funds listed. And we haven't added all of them yet because we're still kind of launching the system and the software. But uh, here's a couple. You know, there's the general fund. There's the, the capital fund for major facility repairs or improvements. Uh, there's the, the church building expansion fund, since we need more parking spaces. We want more classrooms, uh, places to, to fellowship. There's the benevolence fund, the missions fund, the social concerns fund, and the list goes on. Uh, we can we can be shrewd in seeing where God is calling us to steward his resources, both as individuals who give and as a church, as we figure out where to, to use those resources, as well as both to the church, to the local church, as well as to, to other organizations and to other people. I think one example might be this, that, you know, some of your ministry leaders now, we're in the midst of planning for the next fiscal year, which runs from July for June for, for our church. And so we're creating our budgets and, and stewardship is playing a huge role. So pray for us because we're, we're pray, prayerfully thinking and planning where to, to, to invest for God's kingdom. I think another testimony is, is seeing late last year how many brothers and sisters gave abundantly to the benevolence fund. And now that benevolence fund is being used to help those struggling with financial hardship due to the coronavirus. You might have seen one of those announcements in your order of worship this morning. Now, I don't think any of us had the, the foresight 
to see this virus coming. But God in his providence and his timing worked through his church, our church, to set aside money specifically for funds designated for situation like the one we find ourselves in months later. And that's something to be praised. So Jesus calls us not just to be stewards, but to be shrewd stewards. Jesus calls us not just to be stewards, but also to be faithful stewards. So the passage continues in verses 10 to 12. Jesus continues on in his explanation. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. One who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? If you've not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give to you that which is your own? Now, what does this mean? Jesus is talking about faithfulness here. Faithfulness as it relates to stewardship. Faithfulness starts with what we do with what we have now. It's verse 10. Let me say that again. Faithfulness starts with what we do, with what we have now. And so part of faithfulness here is character. Jesus is talking about character as it pertains to faithfulness and stewardship. And so character is going to be consistent no matter the circumstance. If you're faithful in a little, likely you'll be faithful in a lot. And one implication of this is that the idea of stewardship then applies to everyone at every stage. And I think it's particularly challenging for, for those of us who don't have as much as others. And for those of us who may not have almost anything at all. But I think that's Jesus' point. The faithfulness starts with what we do with what we have now. When we're younger, I think we often tell ourselves, and I, I said this too when I, when I was younger, well, I have nothing to give. You know, it's not my money, it's my parents. Now, by saying that, uh, we're, I think we're assuming at least one of two things. First, the assumption is that we don't have any money at all, which in reality may or may not be the case. We might have a part-time job if we're old enough. For those of us who are younger, we, we might have money that we receive from relatives during the holidays. We may even have a savings account in our own name. And then when we finally buy that thing that we wanted, we don't have a problem saying we bought it. We bought it. But maybe what we're really getting at is the second assumption which is this, that the assumption is that our, our parents don't want us to spend money uh, on this when they meant it for that. And so even though that the money might be our money uh, received in, received uh, to, given to us and, and put it in a bank account that was uh, in our name, uh, maybe, they still wanted us to use it in one way rather than another. But now what we're saying then is we're talking about stewardship here. I mean, by saying this, we understand the concept that it's not my money, it's my parents. And so we want to steward, manage their money in a way that honors them. And that's great. That's awesome. How much more so with God? 
Now, let me be clear here. We're not advocating here that you disobey your parents. We're not suggesting that you spend your parents' money in a way that goes against your wishes. But I think there's a challenge here. I think the challenge here is, is twofold. First, when we say I have nothing to give, it's not my money, it's my parents. Are, are we putting words in their mouth? Are we using them without their knowledge as an excuse for our own selfish hearts? Because I know I've done this too when I was, when I was younger. You know, would, would they really take issue with you eating one less meal out per week or buying one less piece of clothing and putting that money towards those less fortunate or towards furthering God's kingdom? Secondly, for parents, how do we disciple and teach our kids to be faithful with what they have now? And I think for one, we, we model that for them. That Jesus calls us to be faithful stewards is even more pressing now as some of us face financial hardships. But we want to be both shrewd and faithful by thinking beyond the present into the future and to act in such a way that demonstrates that what's mine is God's and what's God's is God's. Faithfulness starts with what we do with what we have now. Jesus continues, he's talking about faithful stewardship. And he says this, that faithful stewardship now leads to eternal ownership later. Faithful stewardship now leads to eternal ownership later, verses 11 to 12. So Jesus makes this point. You know, if you can't make, manage someone, something that belongs to someone else now, how can God entrust to you that which would be yours? For example, for those of you who have children, you know, they're probably asking, uh, can I have my own phone now? Can I have my own computer? Can I have my own room now? Can I have my own car now? Uh, they want something of their own, right? The list goes on of things that they want for their own. And I think part of it is that you would give to them that which would be their own when they demonstrate that they can be responsible and manage that which is not theirs. When it's your phone that they're using, when it's your computer that they're on, when it's your car that they're driving. I mean, if one of your teenagers sneaks out and, and takes your car and drives around recklessly and gets into a car accident, are you more inclined or less inclined to buy them their own car now? Now, what is it that God will give us? The true riches, eternal life. The kingdom. Now, let's be sure Jesus is not saying how shrewd or faithful a steward you are will earn your entry into heaven. It's not about how much you give. Nowhere did Jesus give in an amount. He's talking about generosity. He's talking about an attitude, uh, something to do with the heart. And so stewardship is pointing to something deeper. Here's the last point. Verse 13. We are to manage God's money, not to be mastered by it. We are to manage God's money, not to be mastered by it. So he ends here. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. What is Jesus saying here? The throne of your heart is not a love seat. 
The throne of your heart is not a love seat. There's no room for two people. It's not a two-seater. Jesus puts it in pretty stark terms. It's, it's God or money. He's personifying money as, as an idol. I mean, you can put in any other thing here as an idol, but here this passage is talking about money. Only one can take priority. It's only one thing you can fully, truly pursue. The throne of your heart is not a love seat. And so how do we know who sits on that throne? Stewardship is a litmus test of the heart. Stewardship is a litmus test of the heart. It it helps us to to reveal who or what we're really pursuing. What is the motivation behind the decisions we make? Stewardship shows us who our true master is. Stewardship reveals whether we view our money as our money or God's money. And I think it's a challenge because there's many things today that, that point to everything that we own being our own. For example, we work week in and week out. We put in those 40, 50, 60 hours a week. And what's the, the turnout? What's the, the product, the result? It's our name on the pay stub. It's our checking account, which has a direct deposit set up. But scripture reminds us that, no, we're stewards. What we have is what God has graciously given to us to manage and to be generous with for the sake of his kingdom. Now, if that's the case, then I think maybe perhaps the question that we most often really like to ask, but maybe it's not the one we should be asking is this. Maybe the question is is not how much should I give, but how much should I keep? Not how much should I give, but how much should I keep? Uh, At one point in history, a chaplain was preaching on the second coming of Christ. And Queen Victoria afterwards, uh, in conversation with the preacher, she was listening, she exclaimed, I wish, I wish Jesus would come back in my lifetime. And the preacher goes, why? And she, her response was this, so that I could lay my crown at his feet. Powerful, powerful statement. I remember hearing a story from a former teacher and mentor of mine. I actually reached out to him so that I could, I could share the story. He had grown up pretty poor. As a kid, he was a thief. As a kid kid, I remember him sharing, I think he was in middle school or younger or something like that. He had to, actually had to go out. He broke into a store and stole his own mattress so that he could have something to sleep on. And so for him, money was this thing that was going to solve his problems. Now, after uh, coming to Christ, though, he began to notice his desire for money. This began even earlier on in high school. So he began to challenge and test himself because he thought, how do I know if I'm really generous unless I put myself in situations to be so, to see what happens? So he worked for uh, 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 for months to earn $200, which seemed like $2,000 to a 16-year-old in the 90s. Because he knew that uh, what he, he told me was this, that the greatest deception that we can have as Christians is not Satan, but self. And so what do you do with that $200? <clears throat> he secretly gave it away to vi- visiting missionaries. Didn't tell anyone. 
experienced so much joy, it was uncontainable. And at any time he would feel that internal sting for more money, he would create a, a test project, a way to challenge himself, to get unstuck spiritually. Later on in college, he was only making $200 a week. And it was all going to college debt. But he realized at that point, he was giving himself over to debt rather than to God. That didn't mean it was wrong to pay off the debt, but his heart was worshiping debt rather than God. And so he gave a few dollars one week and it hurt. It stung. He wasn't happy about it. And so then he, he determined to keep giving until it didn't hurt. Because he had thought, you know, where had my initial joy gone when I first gave? Evidently, he said, like a fading flower, it had to be nurtured. And so each week he upped it, and each week it kept hurting. At one point, the college finance department started asking him why he wasn't allocating as much to his loans as, as before. But for him, he was really determined uh, to break the grip that money had on him, which he didn't even know he had until he gave. And so $50 one week, $75, $175, then one day he just signs over the whole check. And he mentioned the key for him was that, you know, he didn't tell anyone. It was just between him and God. Wasn't trying to impress anyone. He wasn't trying to earn God's favor or to earn his salvation or acceptance. He just wanted to respond, to worship God and respond in, in gratitude and obedience. And that day as he gave, he had a spell of euphoria so intense it rocked his world. And he says that he never looked back since. And so now when, when people actually give him and his family money for, for food, for clothing, uh, for gas to stay warm in the winter, his family knows that he and them, they're going to use some of that money uh, and give, give some of that uh, money for someone else just to keep watering that generosity plant in his life and, and in their lives. Now, of course, you know, of course, we should be paying off our debt. He, he did so too. And we should be financially responsible and know that God has actually even provided for us through these means. And there's also nothing wrong with, with buying stuff. You know, as you mentioned to me, a, a person has to know when they are in possession of things and when things are in possession uh, and when things are possessing them. But the point of his testimony was this, who or what does your heart belong to? The throne of your heart is not a love seat. No servant can serve two masters. And I think his example, his story is a challenge for us, especially those of us who have been blessed with an abundance of resources to shrewdly and faithfully steward for God. So this morning, I encourage you, all of you to look, examine yourselves. You know, as we're in this quarantine, there's a lot of time for us to, to, to examine and to think. God calls us to be shrewd to be faithful stewards. We're to manage God's money, not to be mastered by it. And so let us together be generous. And in view of eternity, let us shrewdly and faithfully steward what God has given us to manage.
I want to close today with a prayer from God's word. Actually comes from First Chronicles 29, where David said to God in the, the presence of all the assembly. This is right after, uh, uh, right after David and the leaders of Israel gave these free will offerings to God. Right before he prays, the passage notes, then the people rejoiced because they had given willingly for with a whole heart they had offered freely to the Lord. And I think that what King David says and prays, it's so theologically rich with truth. So let's pray together. Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of, our, of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you. And you rule over all. In your hand are power and might. And in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.